everybody, and welcome to episode 256 of the iFreak Show. Today on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. And we have Guy Rambo. Hello from Brazil. This is James Uber. I'm calling from a very snowy Minneapolis at this time. We don't have a guest today, but we've got the regular group of panelists, and Guy launched a new product today, or recently, and we all thought it was pretty cool, and we'd, we'd kind of like to figure out what's going on with it. So, Guy, can you tell us a little bit about your product? Yes, so the product is called AirBuddy, and it's an app for macOS, which uh, the idea is basically uh, you can use your uh, AirPods on your Mac just like you use them on your iOS devices. So you open up the case, the status window pops up, and the difference is that on the Mac, on AirBuddy, you can actually uh, click the window to connect to your AirPods, uh, while on iOS, that's not an option in the status window. So maybe it's even a little bit better than on iOS. And um, it also uh, offers a today widget for the notification center which lists uh, your uh, nearby devices and their battery status. So if you have uh, your iPhone, your iPad, they are going to show up uh, on the widget as well as your AirPods. Okay, very cool. Now, this seems like a feature that Apple would already have, being able to listen to their very expensive headphones on their flagship uh, computer. So do you know why they didn't do this? I know, right? It's very, very interesting. Um, so it's interesting because, and we can go uh, into more detail later if you want to, but the, the subsystem that handles all of the proximity uh, networking stuff, it's all there on macOS, but the UI side of things is not implemented. So you can, you can definitely use AirPods with your Mac without AirBuddy. You can just... Uh, click the uh, volume button and they will show up there eventually. Uh, and you can click connect and listen to uh, your Mac on your AirPods. But there are some issues like it switches the inputs uh, to your AirPods sometimes uh, kind of randomly. So uh, you end up with low quality audio because you're selecting your AirPods as the input as well as the output. Um, so, so yeah, I have no idea why, why this difference is there. I guess they couldn't find anyone to do the UI on the Mac, which is basically what I did. I, I took the subsystem that's already in there and I just made the UI for it. Okay. Very cool. I mean, tell us a little about the, the subsystem. What do you call it? Proximity notification? So this system is, uh, it's called wireless proximity. Uh, and but I, I don't go to that level because it's a little bit low level. But the, the the thing that's implemented on top of that is called the sharing subsystem on iOS. It's a private framework on iOS and on the Mac as well, and it's all handled by a daemon, uh, which is sharing D, and that's the daemon that's going to handle things such as hotspot like using personal hotspot from your mac uh, and also airdrop is handled uh, with that and uh, it also does the uh, scanning for nearby devices so 
all of the services that depend on the nearby device being present are handled by that subsystem on all Apple's uh, systems. So when you have an iPhone that's ready to be set up and it's not been set up yet, you can put it uh, close to your other iPhone and you can transfer data and stuff. That's all through that system, uh, pairing AirPods, all that cool stuff is handled by this sharing daemon. And uh, that's what I'm basically hooking up to to uh, provide information about your AirPods. Okay, so what's it like developing for uh, the subsystem? Like, what do you do? You have a framework you can drag into your project, or what do you have to do? It's a private framework, so it's not as straightforward as just using uh, like AppKit or Foundation. So um, I actually spent a good deal of time. The development of the app itself was not uh, that lengthy, but what took the most time was analyzing how this system works and find where, where, which class I would be able to use to get the information I wanted. Because the, I, I first tried to replicate exactly how iOS does it, but I couldn't. I could actually do it on my Mac because I have SIP disabled and I have a boot argument that basically disables code signing checks. So I could sign my app with invalid entitlements to use this API, which Apple doesn't allow third parties to use. But of course, that's not practical if I actually want to release the product. Uh, and my idea, my initial idea was to not release anything, was to just make something for myself. But once I saw the potential and the, how, how much people wanted this, I went looking for something which would allow me to do this without the need for special entitlements. And I ended up finding a class inside the, the sharing framework, which does the uh, scanning for Bluetooth low energy devices. And to actually know the methods and how I should call them and what values I should provide the methods, I had to disassemble iOS code and look into the calls it makes to replicate them. How long did it take you to write this whole thing? So as I mentioned, the development of the app itself didn't took too long. Uh, it took me about three weeks in total working like, I don't know, let's say three hours a day, something like that on my spare time. Uh, I did spend a couple of weekends working more intensely, I, I guess. But yeah, but the, the, the thing that took the most time and I can't even uh, say exactly how much time because this is something on iOS which I've been looking at for basically two years. So it's a system I've known because from my uh, spelunking. So, so yeah, so the, the, the research work was a lot more complicated than actually developing the app. One of the things that I think is pretty cool about this app is the animations. Um, you know, anybody that's used AirPods on their iOS device has been kind of impressed with the animation when you set it up and, and you know, it can detect when your Air AirPod case is open. Uh, and you kind of mimicked that in the Mac app. Uh, did you have to create those animations yourself or did you find them lurking somewhere in the system? Or how did those come about? No, uh, so that's very interesting. Since I, I'm 
to start with, I'm using a private framework, which is already um, kind of a gray area, but uh, there are many Mac apps that use private frameworks. Since you, you're not um, required to release to, uh, through the App Store, you can end up using private frameworks and, and get away with it on the Mac, which is not the case on iOS. But uh, so, so what, what this means is that I, I need every asset that I want to show in the app, it's either gonna be an asset I made myself or something I can get from somewhere on the system or from the web on demand. I can't like ship Apple product images inside my bundle because that would be violating their copyrights. Uh, so basically even on iOS, when, when you, you're going to see the, that UI, the system will download the, the assets on demand from a feed, which is an XML feed. It's a, a standard feeds format that Apple uses for uh, on-demand assets on iOS, uh, because not every iOS user is going to have a HomePod, for instance. So there's no reason to embed a HomePod video 3D file inside iOS for every user since it's not every user that's going to use it. Um, so they have this way uh, for iOS to download assets on demand only when needed. So what my app does is it actually prefetches the, the asset for uh, AirPods because that's the main use for the app. So if you're downloading my app, you're probably going to use it with AirPods. So the first thing it does once it, uh, it's loaded is it prefetches uh, the assets for AirPods. But if it finds a device nearby that it wants to show the status window for and it doesn't have the assets yet, it's going to go to that feed and download the assets and cache them locally. What if, what if Apple hears that and changes the feed? Then I'm screwed. <laughs> I mean, I guess they're probably a little worried about breaking anybody who hasn't updated to the, you know, they'd have to push that change out in an OS update, I assume. They'd break. Yeah, they'd break yeah. But, but uh, there's a thing that happens when you're using private API, and this applies to uh, this um, asset feed as well, which uh, you can see the pattern. Since I'm, I've been following this system for so many years, I know what changes frequently and what breaks frequently and what what's stable and not changing so frequently. So, and this is something that I've, I've noticed that that's been basically the same since two years ago. So the likelihood that they're going to, Apple won't just change it just for fun to, to break some guy's app, but that, that's not something that they do. Um, so yeah, so the, the likelihood of them doing that is very low. So what are some examples of things that may change frequently versus things that may not change? It's hard to give examples, uh, because iOS and Mac and all of Apple's OSs are, have a huge surface area of even public API, and when you look into private API, the surface area increases significantly. I think there are almost like 2,000 private frameworks on iOS right now. Uh, but yeah, I can give an example uh, like 
something like UI Kit. UI Kit changes all the time. Uh, anything to do with Siri that's constantly changing, they, they change it with every minor update to the OS. Uh, and not necessarily every change has a user-facing effect. Sometimes it's just they are refactoring something and since they, the APIs are private, they, they have more freedom to change them than they have with public API because they can't break everyone's apps that are in the App Store. No, that would be bad. I guess you'll know when your app is in trouble of them breaking things, like right when they're working on exactly what you've been doing. Like they'll, they'll yeah, change things. You, UI. Yeah, you keep an eye on like the betas and uh, if something changes, you have to see what ch what's changed and what broke and why it broke and be ready to update. That makes sense. So how reliable is you know, the library for detecting nearby devices? It's pretty reliable from, from my testing. Um, there, are, there are minor issues with uh, some of the status reporting, uh, like uh, mainly sometimes if it hasn't seen uh, the AirPods, let's say you have the AirPods in your ears, the case is closed in your pocket or something, sometimes, and you come close to your Mac, it can like detect the AirPods and it's going to detect the, the, the AirPods but not the case or it's going to detect the AirPods and the case and it's going to think the case is open so the, the little flag that, that determines if the case, the case is closed or not is going to be uh, op as open uh, and that can cause some issues um, so I had to do some, uh, some tricks to, to prevent because the uh, so a goal I had with the app was to not have that window pop up all the time because it would be annoying to the user. I mean, you're using your Mac and then all of a sudden the huge white thing pops up in the middle of your work. That's not cool. So I wanted to replicate the iOS experience as much as possible. Uh, and in fact, I noticed that uh, some people are not very happy with that. They want the, the status window to show up all the time uh, to... I don't know because they, they think it's uh, cool. Uh, so with a future update, I'm actually considering adding a manual way of triggering it. So what are some of the coolest things that you learned putting this together? Uh, it's interesting. It's not um, directly related to Bluetooth or uh, like the core technology of the app, but I think it's my first... Uh, like real Mac app that uh, relies a lot on uh, a shared app group and uh, inter-process communication. Okay, so what, uh, how do you set up the inter-process communication? So the, the app must be running all the time because it's uh, looking for devices nearby, so there's no point in having an app that you have to manually launch. So the app itself, airbuddy.app, that you launch is just a settings screen and it registers with macOS a helper, airbuddy helper, which will be running in the background all the time. So it registers with macOS and that's going to even, if you restart your Mac, it's going to boot it up in the background. So this helper app is the, the thing that's actually doing all the work and showing the UI. 
And then there's the, the status widget, which is yet another uh, process. And it's gathering information from a shared app group container, which is populated by the helper app. So the uh, widget itself is just a window into this data that, that's managed by this separate process. It doesn't actually uh, fetch devices or download anything. It, it doesn't do anything. It just waits for uh, updates from the helper app and displays them on screen. And then there's a separate XPC process that the helper bootstraps, which is used to handle mobile devices like your iPhone or iPad, because that's unrelated to the Bluetooth stuff. And it's um, also a private API. So I decided to make it a separate process just to make things as isolated as possible. Um, so th there are those mainly those three processes uh, communicating all the time and uh, uh, passing data around and commands around. Like you can click uh, um, a, a headset on the notification widget and it's going to connect to that headset via Bluetooth and set your uh, Mac audio to it. So when you do that, it's going to send a message to the helper app and the helper app is going to do all the work. And it's, uh, it, it gets a little bit more complicated by the fact that widgets on the Mac, they must be sandboxed even when they are not in the Mac App Store. So the widget is sandboxed and there are some restrictions as to how much and what type of data a sandbox app can broadcast to the, the system notification center. Okay, so you talked about the widget helper. Are these templates in Xcode you can just, you can just build? There isn't a helper uh, kind of template because it, it's basically just a, another app target. There's a very specific way you're supposed to embed this uh, helper app inside your app, your main app bundle. And there is a framework, which is a service management framework that has basically just one function you can call and pass it the, the, this uh, helper bundle to register it to run with macOS. And from my experience, this is not super reliable. Like I've had some reports of users that they, they launched the main app and the helper does not run automatically, which is it's supposed to. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna have to do a little bit of uh, adjustment there to like on my main app, make sure the helper is running if macOS doesn't run it automatically, which fortunately is not that hard to do. And the uh, XPC process is a template uh, on, on Mac apps you can go create a new target and it asks you, you can select XPC process. And it even gives you a really nice template with all of the, with some comments explaining what, what you're supposed to do and all of that. So those are all fairly standard macOS templates. And the widget, they even have a list template, which is the most common type of uh, today widget on macOS, just a list of things. And that's a template as well. Okay. Do you have to make sure that your helper app keeps running? Do you have to 
ping it or something like that, or does it start it automatically by the system? So this service management framework is supposed to do that. It does 99% of the time, but sometimes it, it registers your app to run with the system, but it doesn't run it right away. Um, so I will have to implement something like that. I haven't yet, so I have some users that have had this issue and reported it to me. And yeah, but it does make sure uh, that this service management API makes sure your uh, helper keeps running because it registers your helper with LaunchD and LaunchD will make sure your helper is kept running by the system at all times. So the only issue I'm having is like with that first run of the app, sometimes the helper does not start automatically on that first launch when it's registered. So I'll have to like monitor the running apps on that first instance and check after a little delay to give macOS time to launch the app, the helper. If the helper is not running, I can then just tell the system to run it uh, manually that one time. So that's frustrating. That's like where all your one-star reviews come from. It's like, didn't work, yep. one star, I'm out. Yes, uh, my support, uh, my support um, policy with everybody is basically if you're not happy with the app, if you have any issues, I'll refund you, no questions asked. And pretty much all refunds I've given were either people who downloaded the app without uh, reading the system requirements first, because it requires a fairly modern Mac and Mojave. So those are obvious. And the other half was pretty much all people who had this issue. They ran the app and the helper didn't start automatically. Very cool. Uh, um, Andrew, any more tech questions before we get to the, the biz side? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I noticed you actually said something um, on, on a Slack that we're in together about using Kite Compositor for some of the animation stuff, and I'm kind of curious about that. Yeah, so uh, Kite is an app that allows you to author uh, core animations. So you can, uh, it's basically like Sketch, but for animations. So you can, uh, everything you can do with core animation with code, like uh, creating squares and gradients and shapes and stuff, you can do with Kite visually in a very nice UI. And they implemented this cool, um, this, uh, cool technique, which I uncovered, which is the core animation archiving technique. Basically, any core animation layer tree can be archived to a file and then unarchived. Uh, and it includes the animations if, if you have animations in that layer tree. So I use this technique a lot when I need like a simple animation and when I need a dynamic layer tree, which I want to modify and it's kind of tricky to build in code because Kite, it does have a code generator, but I'm not a fan of having all of this huge amount of code uh, that's been generated to create like a layer tree and, and do stuff. So I prefer to do the, the stuff in Kite, export to a core animation archive, load it at runtime, 
and then I can change uh, the uh, layer tree dynamically when stuff happens. So for instance, my uh, battery widget, so any, any place where everybody shows a battery, like the little battery icon, the battery changes in some ways. Basically, when it's 100% charged, it's going to be all green with no border. And when it's not 100% charged, it's going to have an outline and a green hill in the middle that's representing the amount of charge you have. Uh, and those are all layers that I access on, in code based on a name. And then I just change the layer to represent the current state. Uh, and that's very powerful. And it's a lot better, in my opinion, than just doing all the drawing manually. And it's really easy to update the asset in Kite, export a new archive, and add it to my uh, asset catalog. And you can read more about this technique. Uh, I wrote about it on my blog, Ramble.Codes. Uh, it's one of the, the recent posts there. I, yeah, I've, I, I knew that you could do that with um, Core Animation Archives, but it's not something I've ever played around with. I need to come up with some excuse to. Um, so cool. So if people want to buy this, um, it's, it's for sale, right? Yes, uh, you can go to airbuddy.app and there you're going to be redirected to my Gumroad page where you can pay uh, five bucks or more if you want to. So I uh, decided to go for a pay, uh, pay what you want kind, kind of model, but I set a minimum, which is uh, five bucks. So if people feel like they, they want to pay more, they can. So I, I wanted to actually ask about that. Well, one, I saw somebody, I think on Twitter, basically tell you that $5 was too expensive, which kind of made me face palm because $5 seems insanely cheap to me, but whatever. This is why we can't have nice things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, but but why why Gumroad? I, I, I actually don't know if I've seen software sold on Gumroad. I've bought like eBooks there and stuff, but. I thought that was interesting. Yes, uh, so many people don't know about it, but Gumroad uh, does offer uh, software. Um, I don't think it's used that much for software, but they do offer it. It's one of the the categories that they, they allow. So they, they, they are not like a place to sell anything. They, they have some specified uh, stuff and software is one of them. Um, so I, 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 I like Gumroad as a, as a, a buyer. I've bought many things that are sold through Gumroad. And this is kind of, it, it, I don't consider it a commercial project uh, in the sense that I'm, I, I'm not trying to, to run a business around the app. It's more like people find this cool, people gen generally like the stuff I do and they ca keep asking me, how can I support you? So this is a way for people to support me if they, they like and get a nice app out of it, which I even plan on uh, open sourcing the app eventually. Cool. Yeah, I didn't know that about Gumroad. Um, I, uh, the guy who, the guy, the CEO of Gumroad is in, in Utah. But I've never really used it for other th anything other than buying eBooks. And I also think open sourcing the app would be really cool. 
there's one complaint though uh, which some people have about gumroad and and i agree is that it doesn't support apple pay yet they need to fix that so how'd you go about setting up a website uh, for sales yeah so gumroad is very simple it's just like any other marketplace you create an account uh, verify some some information uh, and set up a product page and that's it it published it's very simple and then all i did was uh, i registered my own domain and uh, set up a redirect on the server to just redirect the domain to the gumroad page um, i may or may not create like a landing page for the app i don't think i will but at least i wanted to to have the domain because it's a cool one everybody.app it's kind of a cool domain um, so yeah, it's very simple. It's a simple process and Gumroad's, the payouts are through PayPal. And if you are planning on selling something on Gumroad, uh, as soon as you uh, notice how the sales are going, if you notice that you're going to sell over a certain threshold, I recommend getting the premium, uh, plan, which you pay monthly or, uh, annually if you prefer. Uh, so, because then they are not going to charge you the PayPal fee, they are going to pay it for you. And they also reduce the fee they charge. So depending on how much you sell, it's worth it to upgrade to their premium tier. Uh, very cool. So how many people have given more than the minimum, more than five bucks? I don't have an exact number. Uh, but I can say that a significant amount of people gave 10. Uh, I guess it's a round number, good not round number. Uh, so many people decided to, to give 10. And um, also some people uh, pay like six or seven just to like, oh, I'm not going to pay the minimum. Let me put a, a little bit more. Um, some people mistakenly paid 55 uh, and, and asked for a refund, <laughs> uh, which was kind of funny um, because they went to type five and maybe their MacBook keyboard was repeating the, the five key. I don't know. Um, and uh, like few people, but also like, let's say like 10 people gave like 50 bucks or something like that, like a, significantly larger amounts. Oh, cool. Well, thanks, Guy, for giving us a nice overview of what you worked on, the tech behind it, and I look forward to seeing the code if you open source it. I don't have AirPods. I, I should buy them, but I just haven't gotten around to it. Um, but let's get to the picks. Um, Guy, what do you have for us? Uh, come back to me later, please. <laughs> I forgot to, to get a pick. We've got to wait for it to pick. All right, Andrew. I'm actually kind of in the same boat, but uh, I'm going to pick the Sundance Film Festival. I um, there was it was last week and the week before, and I went to I don't know five movies I think this year, uh, and saw some really good ones. And I don't know if any of them will actually get picked up and be shown in theaters, but my favorites were a movie called I Am Mother, which is a sci-fi movie, sort of in the robot alone in a bunker with a single human. Um, genre along with moon and 2001 and silent running um but it was really good i liked it uh, and then the other movie that i really loved was a documentary called untitled 
documentary, The Amazing Jonathan Story or something like that, untitled The Amazing Jonathan Documentary, I think is what it was. Uh, and it was a documentary about a comedian and magician named The Amazing Jonathan, but uh, it quickly changed into something very different than what you were expecting when you started the movie. And it was funny and weird and um, really entertaining. So that's my pick. Very cool. All right. I've got one pick today. And how many times have you been talking with someone, texting, slacking, whatever, and you had to send them credentials or something? Like you don't want to send the username and the password like in, in Slack or you want to, don't want to text it, don't want it in an email. You know, they haven't signed up for LastPass or 1Password and all that. Um, but there's a service called OneTimeSecret.com that allows you to do that. And you can send it in there. When the person sees it, they only see it one time. Um, so it doesn't stick around forever. Uh, pretty quick, pretty lightweight. Um, it's cool. It's a thing that I run into quite a bit. I go through like weird things where I'll, I'll send that username for by one channel and like the password by another channel, which is just obnoxious, especially if people are not security conscious. So I can't vouch for the tech behind it. You know, someone could probably, could be possibly hacked. Don't put your, your crypto millionaires, you know, crypto millions password in it. Probably not. Uh, but, a cool little thing if you want to um, send uh, info or uh, secure info to someone. So check out One Time Secret. All right, Guy, we're ready for the big pick. What do you got for us? So keeping within the team, um, one of the things I don't think we mentioned during the episode is that everybody also supports other uh, headphones that have the W1 chip from Apple. And one of those is the Beats Studio 3, which I have, and I've been using it when I want to enjoy music or enjoy silence because it's noise canceling. And it's a really nice product. So if you're looking for a good pair of headphones that has noise canceling, Bluetooth, and works very well with Apple devices, even the Mac, uh, if you have everybody you can get a Beats Studio 3. Um, I know that it's not like an audiophile type of headphone, but I'm not one, so it's fine to me. Very cool. Okay, well, we got a great overview of the, the AirBuddy app and the ecosystem around it. Um, so thanks a lot, Guy, for giving us a tour. It was really cool stuff. Awesome. And for everyone else, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.